Welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, the weekly series where myself, Lorcan Mullen, and your Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, take it in turns picking a match from the wide archives of wrestling to discuss and re-appraise or appraise for the first time. Uh, That was the case for me. I don't know if it was the case for you, Simon, with this match. It was. It's not the first match featuring one of the performers that I've seen. We're talking about... Terry Funk taking on Atsushi Anita in a exploding time bomb barbed wire death match. That might not be the exact linkage of those words. I must admit, one of the things that surprised me in in the recent days and, and weeks and months and years of wrestling is how increasingly mainstream, especially in 2021, the death match has become. And you had... Two, essentially, in AEW, with the John Moxley, Kenny Omega version of this match. Yes. Which we'll get to in our comparisons later on. But also, more recently, Chris Jericho's engagement with Nick Gage. MDK! And we've also seen Zack Ryder, Matt Cardona, enter this world. Successfully. He is time of recording the GCW World Heavyweight Champion. I think he's trying to get that renamed the GCW Universal Championship. Of course he is. So. Oh, he's doing so. I'm so happy to see him doing well. But it's funny that this has become so much more mainstreamized. And it's obvious that there's always been this side-by-side world within pro wrestling that I haven't really ever paid that much attention to. Because I'll be honest, it's mostly not my bag. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the brawling, violent matches, but when there's a certain amount of sadism to it is where I kind of draw the line in my own personal enjoyments. Do you think it's a case of it becomes like gore for gore's sake? I think it's been like that pretty early on. I mean, we're talking about FMW from which all of these things kind of sprung forth from afterwards. Although they didn't invent barbed wire in wrestling, they didn't invent ultraviolence in wrestling, Abdullah the Butcher, Bruiser Brody, and the Sheik were having these sort of weapons-filled wild walk-around-the-arena brawls years before this happened. The inspiration for this came from Anita's experiences in Memphis with Nobu Fushi having one of those concession stand brawls that Memphis became famous for. Terry Funk was having these kind of crazy violent matches. Dusty Rose was having the you know, the bunkhouse and street fight matches where they would come out in their jeans and have classically have knee pads on their jeans <laughs> and hit them with the cowbells and everything. So this yeah. is nothing new. Just a quick aside, you speak of bunkhouse brawls, also have turned up recently uh, last year in AEW. We had a bunkhouse brawl match. I mean, there have been, to be honest, too many of those in recent, you know, the week before the Chris Jericho-Nick Gage match we had, or the week after it, we had John Moxley and Lance Archer having a very similar Texas death match. Yeah, that's a New Japan Texas death match, but I, like within AEW, so I, it's that whole forbidden door thing. Like, I don't think that was intentional. I think that's just like New Japan wanted it to be a Texas death match. So yeah, have it. But my point is that it's becoming increasingly popular on television. Yes, 
Yes. It seems almost now to be becoming a rite of passage for pro wrestlers to do at least one of these sorts of matches in their life to prove some sort of toughness. Uh, oftentimes it used to be with Mick Foley, I suppose. You had Sting having the Falls Count Anywhere matches with Bro- uh, in WCW. You had Triple H having his street fight match with brought in the Brabed Wire. That was probably the one that started this going down that path. And before then it was more just like wild brawls like Shawn Michaels and Mind Games with mm. Mankind. But ever since then it was like Randy Orton. It seems like almost every every wrestler almost at this point, it seems, of any kind of higher status in any of the promotions, will have to take a bump onto some thumbtacks at some point. I think even Sting took one in TNA, didn't he? I think he did. Because it became like a requirement for every Abyss match to have it. Yeah. And the thumbtacks element really came from one of the first split-offs of FMW, which was the IWA uh, in Japan, where you had the King of the Death match and everything. This wasn't the first barbed wire match or anything that FMW had done. But Terry Funk, I believe, this was his first involvement with it. That it was, it was an odd career progression Terry Funk had in Japan, I suppose. He was a god in all Japan. But then after his retirement there, he never quite came back and he did. Oh, did he actually honour that one? And I remember Mick Foley's autobiography, he said when they came out for the big, you know, 12 promotion match in the Tokyo Dome that Weekly Pro Wrestling organised. When Terry Funk came out, he came out to a warm reception, but not an orgasmic reception that he might have got back in the days in early 80s Japan and Foley said that that might be because to a certain number of fans there was always that sense of betrayal from him and that became a thing with Onita as well that Onita became known as Mr. Liar for the number of times he would retire (laughs) and then come back to wrestling Onita is another one of those ones where there just seem to be there seem to be figures in Japan that can even have Vince McMahon at least matched for ego proportions and outrageous behavior yeah I mean, you can look into the behavior of antonio inoki to see that he was a match to vince mcmahon in many many ways and vince you know he never made himself the champion of his promotion for 20 years no no he did not <laughs> which is what happened with the inoki and it's what happened with onita although not for 20 years and both inoki and onita ended up involved in japanese politics as well Onita's another figure that got into the, I think, the Japanese diet. I might be wrong there. Along with the likes of the great Sasuke and Antonio Inoki and Hiroshi Hase. He was another man that got into politics as well. And you can see why, because he has this connection with the fans that he plays up. Far more than really any of the other Japanese figures. I mean, it, it seems more... Even more emotional than the bond that Hiroshi Tanahashi seems to be trying to, that seems to have created with his fans, in that, like, Hiroshi Tanahashi never was, like, screaming into the faces of the fans <laughs> as he's cutting a promo. No, I think I think it's because, like, he is the godfather of that whole genre of wrestling within Japan. Like, Tanahashi's, like, mm. he's, one in the, he's once in a century athlete, but he's not mm. the guy who brought a whole style to bear. I also think that there's almost a class structure within Japanese wrestling as well. And this is almost the wrestling of the working classes, it would almost seem like, in a way. There's always been something quite borderline snobbish in the way that New Japan behaves, and behaved when Onita turned up in that promotion. One of my great um, bugbears when I think of previous episodes we've done was when we did the Mount Rushmore 
of wrestling entrances and we did not include the entrance that Onita made for I believe it was a Tokyo Dome match it might have been a different dome it might have been like the Osaka Dome or somewhere else for I believe it was either Kensuke Sasuke or Masahiro Chono in the same way that he clearly had the crowd in the palm of his hands as a face in FMW in New Japan he had them in the palm of his hands as a heel it was very Roddy Piper-esque actually I thought in the middle of the entrance he brought a steel chair with him and he just unfolded the chair sat himself down and then smoked a cigarette I I I, I... I have, we've had this conversation about like you like regretting that. I've heard other people talk about it. I've heard Botchamania's Matthew talk about it in uh, some of the podcasts he's done. Uh, it's, it's something I need to like watch, and I think I will, like straight after we record, actually. Um, so, yeah, what were your feelings of Onita from watching this? What, what was your understanding of him beforehand, and what was your feelings of him after this? I'm going to give you those, but first I'm going to row back slightly to the point you made about the outrageousness of Anita I just wanted to like see him check where he ended up in Japanese politics uh, so I went on the great oracle that is Wikipedia I'm just going to read two paragraphs from Anita's Wikipedia entry if I may one of his first major acts after he got into office was to launch a post 9-11 humanitarian mission to Afghanistan where he performed professional wrestling matches in crudely constructed rings made of sticks and rope to benefit the children. This was all documented on film. Like fellow professional wrestler Scott Steiner, Anita has also claimed to have broken Wilt Chamberlain's record of sleeping with 20,000 women. Coincidentally, his exit from politics was forced by a sex scandal in which he was alleged to have used government accommodations to host a threesome with a pornographic film actress and a female employee of the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Teleportation. After retirement from politics... Wait, teleportation? Transportation. The Japanese aren't quite there yet, I do (laughs) apologise. I know they're technologically advanced, but God... After retirement from politics, he lent his name and image to a Nintendo DS game at Sushi Anita's political quiz. The 20,000 thing just doesn't make sense. You have to have paid for at least three quarters of that, I would think. <sighs> to live to 20,000 days old, you're in your mid-50s. You're somewhere in your 20, between 27 and 28 when you've lived your 10,000th day. So that means you're averaging basically like one and a half women from about the time you're 15 per day. Very crude maths. 20,000 divided by 365 comes out at 54.79. So yes. (laughs) So I think he's lying. (laughs) Unless he's got very deep pockets and goes to the right places. And also, I mean, frankly, there can't possibly be 15,000 women working in the sex trade. So if we're talking unique hits in more ways than one, it doesn't add up. Also, just frankly, it's not something to brag about. It genuinely isn't something to brag about. I, I think I think it's something that some circles would appreciate, but each each to their own, whatever. Isn't it mad, though? Like we're, we're, <laughs> we're talking about the madness of Onita. And to segue back to the initial question you asked me, the first time I saw Onita was in the Electrified Swimming Pool death match, which included Mike Awesome. You bloody love that match. You, you've you been talking about trying to get that. That was one of the reasons why I picked this match, because I wanted to talk an Onita match before we went to the most absurd lengths of it. Because <laughs> I didn't know that that would be a great in, uh, the greatest example of what FMW was, and I got the sense that this might have been more okay. the greatest example. 
Well, it's during that match where I, re- I saw how far he was willing to go in the name of wrestling when he got stabbed in the stomach with, um, I think it was a sickle of some kind. Mm. And it's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> what is this? Um, I saw it as a teenager, so obviously it's teenage, like, oh, gore, excess, like, wow. But now when I look back, I'm like, so unnecessary. Was that also the match where he celebrated by jumping into a r- river with open wounds on a probably quite polluted I'm lake? not sure if it was that one. Because the uh, this one, the, it was it was a pool where the ring was like, I don't know if it wasn't floating, it was like an island. And whenever someone mm. got thrown in, like, the explosions and stuff, like, went off. He did do that, obviously, the open wood thing. I, I, do, I did know of that, but I don't think it's this specific match. So, in the choosing of Terry Funk as the opponents, I mean, this was the first one to have the time bomb element to it, so I'm pretty certain of that. What they really played up, and what Japan is so good at doing, is playing up the history of wrestlers between each other there will be people that interacted 10 years ago and that will still be a factor in their stories when they finally meet 10 years later like someone was saying that there will always be a reference to the fact that Sanada and Yoshihashi whenever they face each other there will always be reference to the fact that they both were in the training class to get into the new Japan dojo and failed Sanada went to all Japan whilst Yoshihashi continued trying to go through New Japan and finally succeed okay. on the third or fourth time of trying. And that that will always be brought up. Whenever people are in the same Young Lions class, they will always be intrinsically... Like, throughout the rest of their careers in New Japan, Yota Suji, Yuya Yamira, and Gabriel Kidd will be intrinsically linked. Through Gabriel Kidd! Teammates or whatever. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, now we've got Sho and Yo, most recently, were partners, and now they're going to be bitter enemies probably for the rest of time until maybe they reunite five, six, seven, eight years down the line. Yeah, so with this, it's obviously the case of when Onita was in the same promotion as Funk was when he was still a young boy in All Japan and a junior. And so Funk would have been an idol to him, and that's what they play up towards the end. And I think this is played up also as, like, Onita's final test. Like I said, that in the American tradition, oftentimes every wrestler has to have that rites of passage going through a, an ultra-violent match. Randy Orton and Triple H and Shawn Mike Sting and Edge all had that match with Mick Foley. Yes, Edge. How did I forget about that And one? so I think Terry Funk... Is this other test for Onita, this guy that was ultimately his idol, and now to truly prove himself, he has to go against this man. And also that sense that Onita changed his style from that junior heavyweight style that ultimately led to his retirement. That's the funny thing as well about ultraviolet matches. Because they're a lot less bump-heavy, weirdly they're less taxing on the bot. The guys that can't wrestle a more conventional style, can do that style. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons why Terry Funk started to go down that path more when he became middle-aged and crazy Terry Funk. Because you can do it where you're just standing and brawling and then someone's lying on the mat and you're gouging something into their eye or their forehead. It's nasty as fuck. But but it's not going to cause you hip problems. It's superficial. Yeah. Uh, And so you can... Being rested up against the ropes or, or pressed up against some barbed wire, it, it cuts you up, 
But cuts, I mean, there's obviously scar tissue on the foreheads of many wrestlers from that era that's quite a quite a sight. I mean, just look at uh, modern-day Abdullah the Butcher. You look at a modern-day Abdullah the Butcher, I don't want to. So, Onita in this, and obviously that pays into the finals, the finish as well. But also, it is that sense of, if he's going to be the great brawler, he has to be the wildest, craziest brawler of all, which is what Terry Funk was. I mean, when we talked about the Funks against Bruiser Brody Stan Hansen match, we were saying that to the Japanese audience, this is almost like the equivalent of the stereotype of Japanese, of, of East Asian people being martial artists, doing crazy kicks and high flying and everything. Yeah. That's the equivalent of a Japanese culture that knows America through Westerns, that it is like John Wayne's and... and Gary Coopers and Lee Marvins and Clint Eastwoods and that Terry Funk is very much of that Lee Marvin drunk old crazy man grizzled gnarled that is what it it is in this world and so it's like trying to do that Americanized style in Japan where it's probably looked down upon because I don't think they had like mainstream television like New Japan and All Japan had so they had to build it off of word of mouth and the fact that they could draw at times Crowds of 40, 50,000 to these large arenas. I mean, it's a big stadium that they're at for this show. And it's a big crowd. And it's because they can promise a spectacle and a stunt show. And what's also funny is that this match as well is quite post-produced. It's almost like a precursor to not just the deathmatch wrestling that we see now, but also the cinematic wrestling. In that to get it, you really do need to see Atsushi Onita looking at himself in the mirror before the match going out, him and Funk having the match, and then you seeing them afterwards backstage, and then you see the, t- the ambulances going off to dramatic music. Like, it's yeah. soundtracked in a way that's different to the airing of a live broadcast, because my guess is they weren't able to broadcast it live. So it is a post-produced show, and a show with a narrative and the biggest special effects that you've ever seen for a wrestling match. I mean, when the explosion happens... I still haven't seen a better looking one. No. And I'm guessing FMW, if anywhere, have, have done it. Yeah. You look at what AEW tried to do in comparison and oh. how much of a wet fart that was. Or you look at how they tried to do it in IWA Japan in the final of the King of the Death matches. I think the basic problem was so much of the build-up was them citing this match in particular. And it was why I wanted to watch this match when we were doing it. I mean, I had this idea to do it for Match of the Week at that point, And that's months ago now. Yeah. So, again, it's just funny how the match of the weeks can work out. I mean, you know, we, we, we're we obviously going to do a Midnight Express or some sort of beautiful Bobby Eaton match sometime soon. But by the time it comes out, it could be, you know, weeks or months after the unfortunate passing. But with um, the John Moxley Omega match, they even literally got Atsushi Onita to do a promo for them talking about the match. Yeah. Soon afterwards, John Moxley starts coming out to the Wild Thing theme that Onita comes out to. So even more so, Onita's influence is becoming more and more visible and prevalent and popular. They tried for so long to get him to America to have a match. The ECW really tried hard to get him to do a match with the Sandman. Oh God, that would have been carnage. Yeah, but the Sandman in 98 or so would have been a terrible guy for him to be against. That's also the same Sandman that had a match with Sabu that's one of the worst matches mm. ever put on pay-per-view that's a future match of the week i'll say that <laughs> <laughs> and so they want to compare it to this match and what's also funny as well i don't know if this was the match that popularized it again but one of the things i have noticed about death matches that i've seen 
is that it's all about that teasing and teasing and then finally letting it happen with the big spot. They don't go straight into it, which I guess is a sign that there is thought into psychology, match structure, into these sort of violent matches, that there's a story to be told and, and chapters in it. Yeah. You build up to it over time. It's not just as some will think and some will dismiss it as carnage violence for the sake of violence. There is a lot of that, and I'm sure there are... Many a hardcore match that we don't know about in shitty little indies around the place. <laughs> Outlaw, Mud Show, whatever the phrase yeah. Cornette's going to use today. And there are some sadist people out there, but there is clearly a sense that there is an art form to it. It's like you might not be able to see the differences between all the different subgenres of metal because you're not an observer, but the people that know about it and care about it will know what's a good black metal song and what's a bad black metal song that we might not be able to perceive a great example is like when you see like uh, fairweather fans watch the super bowl and they're like well why is that happening but like the actual people who watch are like oh, he's doing this to set up this to do this in this match what the teasing is to is to them hitting one of the one of the ropes and setting off the explosion and so they both come close and close, and then finally, I don't have my notes in front of me to say what it is that Funk does, but Funk does throw Anita into the ropes and sets off the first explosion. And what is also interesting is how Onita changes his cells. The first one, I seem to recall, he kind of bounces off the ropes almost automatically, and he's flailing yeah. around in great agony. The second one, and this was, I remember seeing him do it like this when he had the match where he was the great Nita against the great Muta. Of course he'd do that. He gets whipped into the ropes and he just lays there. So it's almost like he's out on his feet. And I do like that. That almost that sense of he has nothing left in him to even react to it at that moment. And I did find that an interesting way to do it as well, that it wasn't one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me, one for you. It does end up... Onita takes it, I think, three times, and Terry Funk only takes it one time. And, and Terry Funk did kind of dominate at the start, and it was really about Onita's wherewithal. And the finish kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere almost. I mean, the, the time bomb is set for 15 minutes, and this match is over in, like, 12 or 13. Yeah. And it's a slow build at the start. It's like Hogan Warrior, almost, in the way that it's, like, built all around a, a knuckle lock or, a, you know, a lock-up. Like, they don't do a lot. Well, it's all ring positioning, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then they've got a very short space of time to get it all done. And so when Onita hits the powerbomb and pins him, it does come as a bit of a shock. But the reason for that is a really cool payoff, ultimately, which is Onita leaving the ring. at the ten Oh, yes, at the 10-minute point, the siren starts, doesn't it? Yes. And it doesn't stop. No, which is good. Like I like that. Cause... I don't know if it was good. I was quite annoyed by it. No, no, no. <laughs> I think they're going for like an air raid, like uh, mm. siren effect, to like, like, oh, danger is coming. I get what mm. they did. I think it was a cool uh, audio effect. Yeah, but I think you could have done that for a minute, and then you didn't need to leave it for the whole of the rest of the five. Does it? Does of... Anita do things by halves? <laughs> no. There we go. I remember you saying how you liked the in the um. Omega Moxley match that Bryce Remsburg was in like the hazmat suit it's basically the same as the one the ref has in this I I love the role of referees in these matches because they it's like you know that joke that goes around every four years like oh when they do the Olympics they should have a regular bloke in like lane nine just as Mm -hmm. like a comparison 
that's what the referee is in this environment because these two hate each other to the point where they're willing to like literally no i do not think this is a match of hatred this is a match of testing one's limits okay maybe that's a poor example i'm thinking maybe more moxley and mega there but either way they're either insane enough to test each other's limits or they hate each other enough to try and cause as much pain on each other as possible which Mm. is cool that guy's just trying to do a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, you always see them when they do the, uh, the the deathmatch tournaments. What they always have is those hardened gloves that allows them to slap the mats mm. with, without fear of getting a thumbtack in the in the hand. Which I always felt sorry for Earl Hebner because I feel like in in the two thousand Royal Rumble, the way that the thumbtacks are spread out for that the, the finish, I feel like Hebner must have taken a thumbtack to the hand for the sake of getting the the pinfall yeah. correct. So good on him for doing that. If he did, I feel like he must have done. And maybe like if he did some like ref slides for the pinfalls, maybe like mm. in the thighs, knees. Uh, yes. Yeah. So then we get the finish, which is not the end of the story because the and like that's why I say it's almost like a cinematic, like it's like a mini movie that you watched essentially. Mm. Even even like the helicopter shots felt like something much more cinematic. It was like something out of Terminator Two or, or something. Yeah. And the explosion is incredible. I mean, it truly is amazing. And I was always suspicious when it's when I saw that this death match set up because the fans were too close. I was like, you can't make the explosion this dangerous if the fans. Yeah. I mean, they were plant fans, I think, for the most part at that point because it was still the. They were dark. So I. Th- yeah, they're yeah. AW dark roster members, I think. Whereas they should have had a a much clearer space between them. And that would have made it work more, and that maybe would have made them less health and safety conscious. And maybe they wouldn't have done what they did, which was clearly a far more controlled explosion that didn't work. It's the flames. That's the key. You need the flames. It was just, as you say, a wet fire is perfect in the 94 at the time. I remember it being incredibly underwhelmed. But it's obvious that they wanted it to be this. Yeah. And so I think they must have had a test where it was, where it did look like that. And then just on the night, it didn't. Yeah. But they even even down to Eddie Kingston covering John Moxley to save him is exactly a reference to Onita realising that Funk is not moving. That powerbomb really did a job on him. And so when he realises that, he ultimately, because it is his hero, mm. his idol from when he was a young boy, and the man that he's clearly modelled so much of his fighting style on, well, yeah, to be fair, it's not just the one power bomb to to Funk cuz like obviously it he gets the pin. Oh yeah, they fight again then, don't they? Yeah, like, yeah, Funk's so Funk's pissed so off. So Anita, yeah. Anita pins him. Funk then tries to choke him out. Somehow, I can't remember how exactly. I think the ref like gets knocked over, but his helmet yeah. comes off and Anita absolutely brains him with it. Then DDTs him, then power bombs him several times. Throws the ref out the ring. It's, he then leaves the ring, and I think it's that's when it, he turns around and goes... It's a dawning realisation, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Now, it's like when we watched that one of the two former partners having a hair versus hair match, and then after the match is over, the, the one that won suddenly realises what they're going to do to their former friend. Yeah. I love that, that idea that actually this has gone too far. And it's a great way for Onita to be the hero in, and the winner... Mm. And the person making the sacrifice and still not having to lose the match. So like there is like Onita goes over in three different kind of ways in this. <laughs> that works for me, brother, brother. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, another point where it's like going too far, uh, the Magnum TA Tully Blanchard match, where afterwards he's like looking at his hands like, yeah. what, what, what did I just do? Although this is like, this is the path that Onita's chosen to go down now. True. I mean, I don't know what his promo was, but it is kind of like, I imagine it is something along the lines of, I will continue to fight, I will continue to hurt, I will continue to bleed for all of you. Almost messianic. I'm going to take all the beatings... And I don't think that's exaggerating. I think he probably has those levels of delusions in him, does Onita. He claims he's shagged 20,000 women. This is a man of delusions <laughs> and grandeur. So the numbers just him. don't add up. <laughs> but even not knowing the language, you can see the passion and, and the you can see why he became as big to a certain number of fans in Japan as a figure like Inoki or Baba or even Ricky Dozan. And to North American audiences, obviously, like Hogan and Ric Flair and Samatino, I can see why he had that appeal. It's not my cup of tea, but it was an interesting sight, and it's obvious that I think they just kept pushing the envelope further after that, because like you say, you're saying swimming pool death matches. And just look at IWA, like the most mainstream offshoots of this promotion, and you look at some of the match descriptions in those ones in comparison. I guess when I started getting back into like properly looking at wrestling again was when I like bought, bought Power Slam on on the reg, and I came across like their coverage of the ultra violent tournament of death CZW's offing, mm. and whilst it didn't have like barbed wire and stuff like that, it did have thumbtacked covered Paris Hilton cardboard cutouts. Mm. It did mm. have old TVs where they took the screen out and replaced it with light tubes. It- That's adding an element of humour to it that i don't think i don't think this has really yeah yeah whereas this is like serious like men of honor grit they're going for operatic they're going for cinematic they're going for grandeur yeah that you can't get when it's a bunch of people out in a in a park somewhere in philadelphia or one of the few states where they're still allowed to operate the tournament yeah yeah, that's one of the things that like, fascinated me when I first saw it in Power Slam was they don't do it in their home state because they can't. <laughs> they can't get a license for, for that event for it. So, I don't really have much more to add at this point. I think we'll do more FMW or IWA or Deathmatch stuff. I would really like to see some John Moxley pre-WWE Deathmatch stuff. That would be intriguing. Hmm. To see where he came from and why he, and see if we can see even more of that Onita in him. Yeah, because it's weird because I saw his damp squib in WWE Live that that Brock Lesnar match he had. Mm. Ooh, that was well the WrestleMania one. Yeah, yeah, that was hot. It was just so flat, such a waste of time. I genuinely wouldn't put it past AEW to put the money up in a year or two's time to get Brock and to say, we want that John Moxley match that you didn't give us at, at WrestleMania. Mm. That's a better, I yeah. Could, I, could, I could see that happening. I'm not saying it will happen, but it's pretty obvious right now you can't just doubt anything possibly happening at some point. Fucking hell, Atsushi Onita appeared on TNT, mainstream American wrestling in 2020. Ric Flair was at Triple Mania. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where, where things start and where they end up. And the journey in between is what makes wrestling so fascinating. Yeah. Onita goes from being trained by Dory Funk Sr. Yeah. A man who's all about the technicians. To having a stadium brawl where he saves Terry Funk. 
from an explosion. <laughs> Wrestling be crazy like that. Wrestling's dumb. It's dumb, insane fun. And you've just got to lean into it sometimes. They don't do that enough. Like when Strowman tipped over Reigns' ambulance. We we knew, but come on. We, we, we had fun with it, you know? Braun Strowman and Roman Reigns was not where I expected this conversation to go, especially as we're trying to wind down towards the end. <laughs> but I think the greatest summary of it I saw was on a British wrestling documentary where they talked to all the old, old you know, uh, ITV guys. And it was one of the Dixons or the Crabtrees. I think it was a Crabtree. And he summed it up as this for wrestling fans. It just says, for non-wrestling fans, for people who don't get it, no explanation will work. For people who get it, no explanation is needed. Yeah. I think even though you can like not like it, I suppose Jim Cornette might be the one on the other end. I could not love this match, but understand why others would. Mm. And I could love elements of this match. Like I said, I love the cinematic, dramatic production, the presentation of it, the post-production of it. I would much rather like to see my cinematic matches more like this than I would whatever they were towards the end. <laughs> yeah. We, we were going to talk about cinematic wrestling for a, an episode, but then it just kind of, it kind of died out for the most part. I mean, <sighs> I don't really want to bring it back in any way, shape, or form for the time being. <laughs> but anyway, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you to discuss death matches, ultraviolence, or whatever else they might want to, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm sending Simon Cross free, free for the free layers of chainmail underwear worn by that referee. My name is Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A at the start of Atsushi and N in the second letter of Onita. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put an at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. Next week, if there are no five-star matches to go, we're staying in Japan and... It's pretty bloody violent. In many ways, it might even be more violent than the match we just covered. In, in some, <laughs> definitely is un, more unsettling given who's involved. In a way, what is our next match, Simon? Your pick for match of the week? Yeah, baby, we are going to All Japan Women's promotion. We are going to the fourteenth of November, nineteen ninety. We're taking place in a steel cage. And it's one of my faves from the Five Star Projects, Aja Kong, taking on Bull Nakano. Battle of bullying Joshi wrestlers. We don't. We usually see them with a with a, a tiny little waif as an opponent. Instead, we've got two big. I don't know. Hosses would mares be the appropriate way? Not really. That doesn't seem no, like an appropriate no. alternative. But we'll figure it out when we record that one. But until then, there's nothing to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen and my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.